On today's show, we're going to cover three common test failures while testing category-rated cabling, what they are, and how to fix them. Welcome to the show where we tackle tough questions submitted by installers, project managers, estimators, and IT personnel, even customers. On this show, we connect at the human level so that we can connect the world. If you're watching this podcast on YouTube and you like this content, please hit the subscribe button and please hit the bell button to be notified when new shows are being published. If you're listening to this show on some podcast platform like iTunes, Stitcher, or some other platform, would you mind consider leaving us a five-star rating? Both of these steps helps us take on that algorithm so more people can hear our message so we can educate, encourage, and enrich the lives of more people in our industry. Also, make sure to join our After Hours live multi-stream broadcast where we answer your questions live on YouTube, LinkedIn Live, Facebook, TikTok, and even Instagram. Well, almost Instagram. After Hours is held on Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And questions submitted early via comments, direct message, or maybe even emails at questions at letstalkcabling.com obviously get preference. And finally, while we provide this content free of charge, and always will, if you would like to support this channel and have access to additional information, make sure to check out the QR code. There you can buy me a cup of coffee, you can schedule a one-on-one 15-minute Zoom call with me after hours, or you can become a Patreon member and enjoy additional benefits. You can even visit our Amazon links page on our website and see products for the ICT industry. You won't pay extra, but I'll get a stipend if you do. Tonight's show was inspired by one of my mentees. She wanted me to cover testing. And in preparation for our meeting later this week, I thought this would make a really great show for the podcast. So here we are. Testing cables has become more complex than testing earlier cable plans. Usually we would just test for continuity, specifically looking for opens, shorts, reversals, transposals, the simple problems. We used a simple, cheap continuity tester. When compared to today's complex analyzers, they were easy to use, and as long as you didn't plug them into a live circuit, they would last a pretty long time. Now, because of the performance demands that we're putting in cable now and the network requires us, we measure and document more items that were previously only done by laboratories, by people such as scientists. How are we simple knuckle-dragging cable pullers supposed to be able to comprehend and fix those issues? Now, obviously, I use the term knuckle-dragging sarcastically. I was once in a meeting with a group of people, engineers, as a matter of fact, and one of them referred to cable installers as knuckle-draggers. Now, obviously, I took grave offense to the issue, and as you know, I know more cable pullers than he does. However, it is a cable stereotype for cable installers emanating from about 20 years ago. There was an organization who put out some literature stating that the average education for a cable puller was an eighth-degree education. Now, in today's environment, that's just simply not true. Even though the cable installers of today are more computer and program savvy than those installers of the past. Testing is still complex. In order to know how to fix what that cable tester is telling you is wrong, you have to understand what causes those issues and how to fix those issues. I want to cover three common problems installers will come across. I will explain what they are, 
and how to fix them. But I don't want to assume that everybody listening to the show, though, has tested cables with a certification tester or even knows what the, a few of the basics. First, the two types of tests that we perform for horizontal voice and data cabling, those tests are called permanent link and channel testing. Now, most certification testers have a device like a master and a slave, or they might call it a main and a secondary. Some of the new test functions can now function as either giving us even more flexibility while testing. It just depends on which one you want to be the master. Usually the master does the heavy lifting and the slave unit just measures and reports back to the master unit. When performing a permanent link test, you will need to attach two permanent link heads to the testers. The permanent link head has a device that attaches directly to the tester and has a patch cord like coming out of the head terminating on a male AP8C modular connector that plugs directly into the port on the patch panel and the female AP8C connector sitting on that faceplate. Once the permanent link has been attached to the tester, though, it activates an algorithm inside the tester which dismisses any crosstalk or return loss issues associated with that permanent link cord. Now, it measures from the port on that patch panel through the cable any consolidation or transition points to the connector on the faceplate. The certifier is measuring the part of the cable plant that's considered to be permanent. Once installed, though, nobody except a trained technician should be removing that faceplate. Often, if an end user does, they can void their warranty from the manufacturer. It's called permanent because it's considered to be permanent. The next test that you may do is called a channel test. This will require using a different set of heads to be placed on the tester. Now, these heads have a female APHC connector on that head. In order to conduct a test, you will need two brand spanking new patch cords, and you're going to plug them into the heads and then the other ends into the port on the patch panel and the port on that faceplate. The channel head measures from just past that first modular plug on the patch cord through the patch cord, through the port on the patch panel, through the cable plant, through the connector on the faceplate, through the patch cord on the other side to just before that male APAC connector plugging in on the other tester head. It should be noted, though, that once this test is performed, then you have to leave those patch cords plugged in. If you want to test another cable, you will need to get two more patch cords because you just certified that those patch cords work with that connector, worked with that cable, and works with that port on the patch panel. It is tested as a unit. Special note here, there is another type of head called a patch cord head. Those heads are either for testing performance of patch cords or for testing modular plug terminated link or MPTL applications. That's not a part of today's podcast. Now the process for gearing up for testing is to basically just grab your certification tester from your warehouse or the other crew now, these testers range anywhere from about 9000 to 20000 so most companies make crews share them. They don't have a, a tester for everybody in the company because they're expensive. Once you are handed that tester, take the tester bag, take the case, open it up the case, and verify the contents. Make sure that both testers are in that bag. Make sure both permanent link heads and both channel heads are in that bag. Make sure the instruction manual and and the charging cords are in that bag. I learned that one the hard way. Then give the tester and all the components a quick look over. Pay special attention to any bent pins, cracks in the cords, 
or missing clips on the AP8C connectors. Also, turn on the tester and verify that it has been factory calibrated within the 12 previous months. This is a requirement by the standards and most manufacturers who may be issuing a warranty. And finally, verify that the tester has the latest software update on it. If you're not sure, then call the manufacturer, ask them what is the latest version of the software, they'll tell you. Updating that software is a simple task that most people can do with the testers. Make sure that any other differences that you found earlier are remedied before you go anywhere. Now, once you get on the site where the testing will be performed, ensure that the batteries are completely charged before you begin testing. Inaccurate test measurements can occur with low battery levels. Next, go to the settings feature. And every test is a little bit different here, but they are still somewhat similar. Enter in your name as the operator, the project name and the date you're doing the testing, the customer's name, and maybe even the customer's project number. Then you're going to want to set the tester up for the type of cable that you're going to be certifying. So if you're testing for Category 6 cable, ensure that the tester is set up for Cat 6 cable and pay attention to whether it's set up to shielded or unshielded cable. Now, in addition to everything I just covered, you may also have even some company-specific procedures to follow as well. Make sure that you do or your project managers become very angry and nobody wants an angry project manager. Once you start testing, there are four possible results that you may get. They are pass, star pass, fail, star fail. Now, pass means you're good to go. It means that cable meets the electrical characteristics that were set out by the standards, and you get the big green check, or you get the pass on those test results. If you get a star pass or a star fail, that indicates that one or more of those tests are within the accuracy limits of the actual cable tester. It's either just barely a pass or just barely a fail, but the tester can't make a good determination because it's within the accuracy limits of the tester. Now, once you receive either one of those, either look at the test result to determine which specific test that is that failed and then fix that issue within the cable. Fix that issue and then retest the cable. Now, the first and probably most common issue found that you're going to deal with is called a wire map fail. Now, the tester is going to show you a graphical representation of the pairs in the cable and where they're going to land on the port on that faceplate or that patch panel. Be careful because the tester will be reporting to you in pin numbers, not pair numbers, and those are different. The pin numbers are pins 1 through 8, with 1 being on the far left and 8 being on the far right. Now, the pair numbers are blue is pair 1, orange is pair 2, green is pair 3, and finally, brown is pair 4. So if your tester reports a problem with pin 1, that tester is not telling you it's the blue pair because the blue pair lands on pins 4 and 5. So remember that. The tester talks to you in pin numbers, and we generally think in pair numbers. This is where that graphical representation on that screen is going to help you a lot because you want to see those lines go horizontally from pin 1 on one side of that graph to pin 1 on the other side of that graph with no opens or crossing over to a different pins. So pin 1 should go to pin 1, pin 2 should go to pin 2, and so on. Now, unless you make a crossover cable, which is becoming rare in our today's environment, especially with auto-sensing network equipment. If you have a, a crossover cable, you'll see crossovers. You'll want to look to make sure that there are no opens, no shorts, and an open will be indicated by a break somewhere in that horizontal line. And you'll be able to tell which conductor with the, the TDR function 
and within that certifier, and you'll be able to tell where that pin or that, that conductor is broken. You may also see transposed pairs, where entire pairs are swapped with each other. Blue pair might go from the blue pair on the one side, but land where the orange pair is supposed to on the other side. That's called a pair transposal. This is common, especially if one side is terminated T568A and the other side was terminated T568B. The second issue I want to cover today is insertion loss. Now, in the past, we used to call this attenuation. Now, while they're similar, there is a small difference between the two, but generally, those two terms are synonymous. The tester will send a signal down the cable. As that signal in the form of electron travels down that cable, it becomes weaker. Now, the tester on the other side will measure how strong the signal is when it comes out the end of that cable, and it's going to report that back to the main unit. In this scenario, you want a small dB number. A couple of things can cause insertion loss, and length, which is probably the most common, is going to be one of them, and probably the most common one that you're going to fix. So first you want to do is you want to verify that your cable does not exceed 90 meters or 295 feet for a permanent link, or 100 meters or 328 feet for a channel. Other things that can cause insertion loss failures, but not quite as common as the excess length, include setting the test up incorrectly. For example, you set the tester up for CAT6A, and you're now testing 5E cable. Or, or better yet, the previous person who was testing cable was testing CAT6A cable, and you're testing 5E, and you forgot to change it. Another issue could be poor quality or field-constructed patch cords. They can also cause insertion loss if you're doing channel testing, but they're a little bit more rare. Excess heat can also cause insertion loss failures. If your cable runs over top of red iron right under the metal panel of the roof, it's being exposed to high heat. And when it runs through warehouses or foundries or other type of hot environments, that can cause ex excess insertion loss. Now, while this can happen, it's not as common as the other factors that we discussed just a few moments ago. However, you should be aware of this just in case that you have to try to address this while out in the field and you fix the other problems, but you're still getting that fail on the insertion loss. This could be the issue. The third common problem is when the cable fails from EMI in the forms of near and crosstalk, far and crosstalk, power some near and crosstalk, power some far and crosstalk, and alien crosstalk. Now, those fancy names just tells you where the EMI is happening and which pairs are going to be involved. Now, EMI stands for electromagnetic interference, which is basically going to be defined as when one electric or electronic device interferes with another electric or electronic device. Think about when you're toning cables. That tone or signal will bleed over to the other cables in close proximity in that bundle with that toned cable. That is EMI. EMI has three components, an interfering source, a susceptible unit, and a coupling between those two. Now, in the scenario I just described with the cable being toned, the cable with the tone attached is the one with the interfering source. The other cables in the bundles are the susceptible units, and the coupling between the two of them is going to be distance. If you're going to move those that, the cable with the tone away from the bundle and then stick the probe back into that bundle, you'll notice that that tone signal will decrease or potentially even go away from the cables in that bundle. There's two ways to get rid of EMI. That is separation or metallic barriers in the form of shielding or metal dividers or potentially even conduit. Conduit is the best way to get rid of EMI, but it's also the most expensive and the least way, the, the, the least way that we can do moves edge changes in the future. In order to provide a complete understanding 
There's also EMC, which stands for electromagnetic compatibility. EMC is the exact opposite of EMI. It means that those two devices or those two cables do not interfere with each other. I want you to think about the computer and a printer, the attached to a computer, maybe sitting at your desk. Now, those two devices are in very close proximity to each other, but yet they don't interfere with each other. Let's go through those issues. The first one, near-end crosstalk, abbreviated N-E-X-T. It is how much one pair interferes with another pair at the near end of the cable. For example, the blue pair would be interfering with the orange pair at the near end. Far and crosstalk is the exact same thing, but it's happening at the far end of the cable. Now, power sum near end crosstalk, abbreviated PSNEXT, and power sum far end crosstalk, which is abbreviated PSFEXT, are how much those three pair inside that cable interfere with that remaining pair at either the near or the far end, depending on which one fails. If you get a far end crosstalk failure, then the issue is going to be at the far end of the cable. Power sum near and crosstalk and power sum far and crosstalk are important to us because to get to 10 gig over copper, we use all four pairs inside that cable, unlike one gig, which only uses two pair. We need to know how those pairs behave with each other within that cable jacket, especially at the higher frequencies, which are going to be required by CAT6 and CAT6A cable. CAT6A performs to 250 megahertz. CAT6A performs up to 500 megahertz. One of the most common issues with near and crosstalk, far and crosstalk, and the power sum crosstalks is too much untwisting at the pair terminations. This is why you want to keep your cable jacket as close to the jack or the back of the patch panel as you can possibly get it. This will help you avoid untwisting too much of the pairs. Now, you're allowed to untwist up to a quarter of an inch for CAT6A and up to a half an inch for CAT5E or CAT6. But if that jacket comes all the way up to the back of the connector, or all the way up to the back of that patch panel, you will be well within those numbers. If you get that failure, you can also run the TDR function on your certifier because a kink in the cable can also give you this type of failure if it's within 60 feet of one end of the cable or the other. Now, the TDR function will show you at the footage marker so you can actually rule out the termination and then go look at the actual location. Now, unfortunately, you're going to be replacing that cable. Because trying to bend the cable back to normal, you will never get those pairs to within the same cable geometry that the factory had them, uh, set them at the factory. Now, another issue can be because just because, you know, I just remembered, I did a project in Niles, Ohio, where I got foreign crosstalk failures on a few of my cables at a call center that I installed. Now, it ended up being bad connectors. There wasn't a lot of them. It was only five out of probably about 3,000 connectors. And the factories, they strive for a 99.99% rate for producing quality products. But even with the four nines, some bad ones are still going to slip out the door. In my 40 years, this was the only time that I had connectors fail because of FAR and crosstalk issues, and they needed to be replaced. If the issue is not resolved, then you need to make sure that you're using the correct adapter for the tester, for example, a CAT6A adapter for CAT6A cable, especially for the permanent link. Not the problem, like especially for the patch cord adapters. Also, poor quality patch cords can cause this failure as well. There are two other areas where EMI will impact you. They are attenuation crosstalk ratio far end and power sum attenuation crosstalk ratio far end, abbreviated 
ACR-F and PSACR-F. Now, these are not actual tests. Rather, they're calculations based on near and crosstalk, far and crosstalk, power sum near and crosstalk, and power sum far and crosstalk. If you're getting a fail within the ACR-F and the power sum ACR-F, you're also getting a fail out of one of the either near and crosstalk, far and crosstalk, or one of the power sum crosstalks. Fish, fix the issue in the near and crosstalk or the far and crosstalk problems, and then your ACR-F or your power sum ACR-F will resolve automatically. There are also some other areas in your cable that may fail, which include DC resistance, delay skew, propagation delay, return loss, just to name a few. Make sure you tune in next week to find out how to fix those issues and what they actually are. You know, other episodes that we have in the hopper include a conversation with Steve Cowles, RCDD, from AM Test Manufacturing to discuss how to do fiber optic gloss budgets. Christopher Hobbs from Bixie discussing the newly released 8th edition ITSA manual and the changes to their training program to adjust to those changes. You know, I hope that you're able to learn something new from today's show. And I hope something you learned from this show has made you a little bit more proficient in your field. Make sure to let me know if you learned something from this episode or if it has impacted your life. Until next time, remember, knowledge is power. That's it for this episode of today's podcast. We hope you were able to learn something. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future content. Also, leave a rating so we can help even more people learn about telecommunications. Until next time, be safe.